We've heard of your grace this morning. We are thankful for your grace. But we depend on your grace continually, even tonight, as we would listen to your word, as we would preach your word. Father, we need you. We need your Holy Spirit. For without you, we profit nothing. Without you, we become vain and proud with just knowledge. But Lord, we pray that you would fill our hearts tonight and not just our minds, that you would move us to more devotion and loyalty to you, to more faith, more trust, and more love for you and each other. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. I'd like to begin by reading from an old book that I dug up the other day, and I just happened to open it to this. It's on anthropology. I just happened to open it on the heart. It says, We have in the center of the thorax a heart consisting of two parts, right and left, each having two cavities, an auricle and ventricle. The heart is simple, simply two force pumps joined together for convenience. He goes on to say, each pump is furnished with beautiful valves which allow the current of blood to go on but, these, but prevent its return. These valves work constantly for more than 100 years in some cases without getting out of order. He goes on, later after he describes the circulation of the blood from this heart and says, the living blood is the pablum of life to all parts of the system. It is constantly distributing their substance to bone, muscle, brain, nerve, etc., constantly sending off secretions and excretions, and it must also receive regularly new supplies of matter prepared from our food by the process of digestion. And he adds, how important that this blood be pure, that our food be natural and our digestion well performed. And it's just interesting, later on he says, the heart of forcing pump, he describes as a beautiful mechanical contrivance. And later he says, for all this, some other power is needed for this circulation and this function of some of the parts of the body a power guided from intelligence, a power which acts upon the nervous system and which is intimately related to the power of life. Who can comprehend this power which resides in vegetables, in animals, and supremely in man? The heart is, the natural heart is a marvelous thing. It's fascinating. I I could like, I'd enjoy reading all of that because it's so interesting. But how intricate and how more fascinating is the heart of man that we cannot see? The heart that resides in us. The heart that God sees. Tonight, we shall look at, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now you'll remember as we are preaching through the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes lead up to this beatitude of blessed are the pure in heart, and they all have to do pretty much with the heart, if you'll notice. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You remember that man comes by the grace of God to realize his poverty, his need of something outside of himself. He sees his sin, 
He sees the need of forgiveness, and he sees the need of cleansing, of purifying. And he looks to Christ for that. Blessed are they that mourn. The true Christian will mourn for these sins. He will mourn at the outset of his conversion, cause him to seek God, but he will mourn throughout his Christian life. And this is a blessed mourning. It's not to be shunned. It's a mourning that can be joined with joy, a mourning for the sin that is so opposite of God and his character. The Beatitudes go on to state that blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. This is a truly a, a beatitude that really exposes the Christian and the non-Christian. Um, do you hunger? Do you thirst for holiness? Do you, do you seek? Do you hunger and thirst as you, as you do more than anything in life, even food and drink, for righteousness? Not only uh, an exp- uh, a judicial righteousness that comes from God through Christ, but a practical righteousness. The, the true Christian that is justified by God will have a hunger and thirst for a practical righteousness. It won't just stop with sins forgiven and I'm going to heaven. It'll begin and he'll continue for that unsatiable thirst for godliness and an unsatiable thirst for God himself, which cannot really be separated from seeking holiness and God. The two go together. It brings us then to blessed are the merciful, seeing the mercy of God in oneself, the mercy God has had on my soul because of the extremity, the ugliness, the the wretchedness of my sin, God in his grace has forgiven me, has called me by his Holy Spirit to his Savior. Seeing that mercy, realizing that mercy makes me merciful to others. If you don't have a mercy to others, maybe you never receive that mercy from God, or maybe you really don't know the extent of that mercy, as it was described this morning. We need to continually look upon and gaze upon the grace of God in Christ that has made us new creatures. And that brings us to our present beatitude. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. John Flavel, or Flavel, however you want to say that. I think Flavel has a little nicer ring to it. John Flavel, in his work, a saint indeed, or some know as um, keeping the heart, as the modern title is. He says, the heart of man is his worst part before it be regenerate, and the best afterwards. Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. But what is this heart that Jesus speaks of here? What is the heart that is in Proverbs 4.23, and who are the pure in heart? It's of extreme importance that we know the answer to these questions. For if Jesus stresses anything in his teachings throughout the Gospels, and especially in this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, it is the heart. Flavel continues in his work to state, the eye of God is, and the eye of the Christian ought to be 
principally fixed upon it, speaking of the heart. I think we know something of what the heart is, though we may be able to, or we may not, not be able to put it, uh, a definition to it all the time. And unfortunately, sometimes we separate it and compartmentalize it too much. We know what it is to have, for instance, an intellectual knowledge of something, but not a heart for it, though the intellect is part of the heart, as we'll see. I may, for instance, subscribe to a certain truth in the 1689 Confession, but my heart hasn't fully taken hold of it. Or should I say, maybe the truth hasn't taken hold of my heart. So we see there can be this difference, but also it's the same thing. So what do I mean by this? I can see truth, and I think this happens to all of us. I can read truth in the scriptures. How many times do we read the scriptures in our devotions? But we know the heart just hasn't taken hold of it yet. I find this is a dilemma all through my Christian life. One of the chief dilemmas that I have, perhaps you have, I want the truths of God to take hold of my heart, not just my mind. So there is, sometimes we speak of a difference there, but the heart includes the mind. Charles Bridges calls this holy sensibility when he speaks of it in reference to the minister. Holy sensibility. The heart is deep. It takes a lot of searching to reach its depths. There are things on the surface that are easily seen by both ourselves and even others. But there are things deep down that are not easily seen by even ourselves. That to be found, one needs the searching power and the searching light of God's word and God's Holy Spirit. But what is this vast chasm of our being made of? What is the heart of man? It can be softened or it can be hardened. It can be bitter and full of dead men's bones, or it can be filled with compassion, mercy, and love. It can be filled with Satan himself, as in Judas, or it can be filled and be the very dwelling place of God. It can be deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, or it can be renewed by God and made clean and pure. We can examine the heart, but God searches the heart. The physical heart may cease to beat one day, but this heart spoken of here will go on and on into eternity. So what is the heart? Well, look at the Greek. The Greek word, not surprisingly enough, is cardia. We can see the English word coming from cardia. Favel again says, it is the seat of principles and fountain of action. Matthew 15, 19, out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, blasphemies. All these things come from within. It is our inner self, the totality of our inner being. William Perkins calls it the soul with its parts and faculties. It's the mind, the conscience, the will, the affections, the desires. It is the seat, the living place for all of these. It's the center of one's personality, the seat of understanding, 
in Isaiah, you can see God blinded the, the eyes and their hearts. Concerning the Jews, there's a veil upon their hearts. It's the seat of reason, the seat of faith and unbelief. In Romans 10, we see this believe with the heart. It also says and speaks of, in Romans, an evil heart of unbelief. So it's the inner man, the inner self, that no one sees really but God. So we need to wade through somewhat the original language and sit ourselves down on that hillside back in the time when it was originally preached and try to transfix our minds to have the same mindset as they did and properly understand what Jesus meant by these words, blessed are the pure in heart. You see, we both have the written, we, we, we all have the written revelation, which is in many ways advantageous, but they had experiential revelation of the moment. For instance, they knew what it was to hunger and thirst when we really don't, like he describes in, in verse 6. They felt it. Jesus drew on these things to impress the mind, the understanding, and the physical being of his listeners. Oh, to speak of the heart to the heart. First, to get an understanding of the message Jesus was trying to impress on his disciples and others listening, we need to look at the context of the sermon itself, the Sermon on the Mount. What is he aiming at throughout most of the sermon? The heart. Read through the sermon. You'll see that. And what was the obstacle that he was overcoming over and over again? Not only in this sermon, but through his whole ministry. We see it throughout Matthew. The Pharisees and other religious rulers' idea that the important thing was ceremonial purity and outward piety. John spoke of this last week. He spoke of it in Mark 7. He was against, he was against and coming against religious hypocrisy. <clears throat> to remind us of, of that passage in Mark 7, reading from verse 6 to 9. He said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other such things you do. In verse 20, he says what <clears throat> he describes further the heart. He says, what comes out of a man that defiles a man? From within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, thefts. And he goes on again. So you see, they, had, they concentrated on their, their outward piety, the cleansing of the outward cup. <clears throat> In Matthew 23, in the familiar chapter of the woes, he pronounces on the scribes and Pharisees, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe and mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. 
blind guides who strain out a net and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees first clean the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. And he deals with, again, in Sermon on the Mount, over and over. He, says, he speaks of anger being the sin of murder, anger in the heart. In, Matt, in the same chapter, whosoever looks on a woman and lusts after a woman has committed adultery already in his heart. He speaks of chari- charitable deeds that we do in Matthew 6, that they should not be seen of men, that they aren't to be seen of men. Is that, that's not the purpose. Prayer, he speaks of, as, as to go into your closet alone, to not sound a trumpet like they actually did. They sounded trumpets on the street corner so they could be seen and, and adored. And their fasting was, was openly, they showed themselves as as fasting to others, that they could be uh, revered. Um, he says to cleanse your face. Just look normal when you're fasting. So it's all these, these outward things Jesus was coming against, and he was focusing on the heart throughout the sermon. And this is why he stresses in this beatitude purity of the heart. <clears throat> and it was always there them to see. It was way back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with what? Your outward looks? No, with all your heart. And Jesus quotes that in, in, in the New Testament. <clears throat> so now let's look at the word pure and then we'll, we'll put it all together. The Greek word is katharos. In classical Greek, it had a variety of meanings. And on the day of Homer, Homer used it as physically clean, as a clean body, clean clothes, uh, clothes without folds. It's like when you try to iron your clothes. It spoke of ceremonial cleanliness. It is to uh, be fit to approach God. Uh, it also spoke of Free from debt, which is interesting. Free of debt, um, of, of a soul morally clean. And it, there was an idea of purity, free from mixture, unmixed feelings, un, unmixed metals, not alloys. Again, it, mix, it, it meant unmixed single. Now, that's an important meaning single, undivided, without blemish. So what did it mean to these people sitting there listening to Jesus? Blessed are the pure in heart. Well, they probably know, knew something of the Old Testament. So let's look at uh, what the understanding might have been from passages in the Old Testament. In Psalm 24, if you, if you want to turn there, you can follow along with me. And this was 
providentially read in our scripture reading this morning, Proverbs, 20, Proverbs I mean, Psalm 24, verses 3 to 6. For who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who may stand in his holy place? Then the answer comes, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. So we have a description here. He says in the psalm, a description of what clean hands are and a pure heart. He who has not lifted up his soul to an idol. Now in the Old Testament, the term, most of the time, a filthiness of heart refers to idolatry. In Psalm 44:20, it states, If we have forgotten the name of our God, are stretched out our hands to a strange God, shall not God search this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. <clears throat> in, in Ezekiel 36, verse 25, says, Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. So the cleansing was from idolatry. From, from the filthiness, mainly, of idolatry. It also states here, Who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. So to swear, as we used to know, like the, I don't know if they still do it in court, I think they might, we used to swear on a Bible. That's because swearing on something, you swore on something sacred. It was sacred to you. It was revered. It was something feared. It was something you had a loyalty to. So to, to swear Deceitfully, in some translations, it's said to swear to a false god. <clears throat> so there's this sense of being loyal to the one and true God. He who has clean hands and a pure heart will not lift up his soul to an idol or swear deceitfully. In the very next psalm, the psalmist says, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Second Chronicles 16.9 says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him or whose heart is completely his. That's the singleness of heart, this purity of heart described. This is probably what they understood by purity of heart. And later in the sermon, <clears throat> I think it's, it's more pointed out this meaning because he's, he speaks of Matthew 6.22, the eye being single. Now, there's different translations of that, being, the eye being clear, but I, I think the eye being single gives you more the idea of that one vision, that, that one sight, not, not a distracted double vision. He, because he goes on right after that, 
to describe no one can serve two masters. So there's that dilemma of two masters. You can't serve two masters. Have your eyes on the one master. <clears throat> Turning to uh, Ezekiel 36. We'll try to get a better understanding of what, what they understood by a, a purity of heart. <clears throat> Again, reading the whole verse that we, we quoted a little of before in Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. Then will I sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all filthiness and from all your idols. And I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. So these things were probably in their minds, these scriptures, this idea and this promise, I will give you a new heart and cleanse you from the filthiness. I will put a, a, my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. In, in Ezekiel 11, he also says, I will give, you, give them one heart or an undivided heart. It's the same Greek word used in Ezekiel and the same Greek word used in Matthew. In Psalm 86, a verse that I've used in prayer plenty of times, unite my heart to fear thy name. That gives you an idea of, of just gather all my being, gather all my heart together to fear your name. So you see, it's, it's that, that undivided heart, that singleness of I, <clears throat> a priority to seek first the kingdom of God. It's an eye that has a heart for one God, one passion, one goal, one purpose, not divided all the time. James speaks of, it says, purify your hearts, ye double-minded. So it's not to be double-minded, it's to have that pure heart, undivided heart. Not a double heart. <clears throat> Philippians. We see a picture of this heart in Paul. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 to 14. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. So you, keep in mind the one thing here, the one thing that keeps coming up in, in Paul's mind here. Everything else, he counts but loss. His self-righteousness, everything before, for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them all as rubbish, that I may gain Christ, his one goal, his one one ambition, and to be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Again, that I may know him, the most important thing, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained or am already per perfected, but I press on 
that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself as, ap- as to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press towards the goal for the price of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind, and if any of you think otherwise, God will reveal even that to you. This one thing I do, I press towards the goal, the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. He had one thing. That doesn't mean, I mean, you can't have ambitions in life. Uh, You go to college for ambitions. uh, You're striving for other things in life. But your prime purpose, your prime goal, your heart is aimed at Christ. It's aimed at God. So the important thing to see, mainly emphasized by Christ, is the difference here of true religion and false pharisaical religion. I, I use religion as they used to use religion, the term as, as they didn't call it Christianity necessarily back then. Uh, even James called it religion, true religion. So true religion is the religion of a changed heart, a heart changed by the grace of God, as we heard this morning, a heart loyal to God, a heart of sincerity and truth, a heart that is genuine. I think of Nathaniel's heart, without guile, one of godly motives, right thinking, a heart filled with true faith, love, dependence, and trust in God. A person of this heart will understand that the care of the inner man is the most important thing. For out of it, the inner man, the heart, are the very issues of life. He'll find himself continually crying out like the psalmist David, wash me, cleanse me, creating me a clean heart. So where is your care today? What do you care the most What is your main concern? Blessed are the pure in heart. The heart is the issue with one who truly has been brought into the union with Christ and indwelt by God's Holy Spirit. Even the thought of evil can slay his conscience. Adultery in the heart is to him more grievous than the unconverted man who actually commits the act. The fact that its sinful passions would still arise in his heart and in his mind astonishes him. And the godly man wonders that he could even be a Christian and have these thoughts still plague his imaginations. He begins to say to himself and to God, if I could cure the problem by plucking out my right eye, I would do it. But no, this he knows will not eradicate the indwelling sin He so loves and he so hates at the same time, but he knows it's in his heart. So he looks to God for the work of sanctification to be quickened in him. He looks to Christ not only for forgiveness, but for Christ to purge the poison that pollutes his heart. He looks to Christ. The healthy Christian hungers and thirsts for righteousness, but not a partial righteousness, 
not a compartmentalized holiness, but a pure heart, an undivided heart. He realizes the danger of allowing the smallest, the briefest, impure thoughts to invade his mind, the little foxes that spoil the vine. He cries with Charles Wesley in his hymn, Oh, for a heart to praise my God, a heart from sin set free. But Charles Wesley also goes on to say, A heart that always feels thy blood so freely spilt for me. So one of the areas I want to look for this heart, this pure heart, is Christ. In Psalm 40, verse 8, speaking of Christ, a messianic psalm, part of that says, Then I said, Behold, I come in a scroll of the book, it is written on me. I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is written within my heart. Jesus Christ's obedience flowed from the heart. It wasn't external, it was internal and external. Get a hold of the heart of Christ. Don't just read the Gospels as an outward picture of Christ and a reflection of God. Read the Bible searching for the heart of Christ, therefore the heart of God. The life of Christ is the very, is the very heart pulse of God. See it, feel it, embrace it, and live it. To walk even as he walked is to live out the inner life, the heart of Christ, whose will was always to do the will of his Father in heaven. His life, his ministry, flowed out of the reservoir of God's love. Out of your heart will flow rivers of living waters as you abide in Christ. This is the Christian's life power. Guided by the Holy Spirit and God's word, tap into it, as it were, into the very heart of Jesus in the Gospels. The heart behind the works and the actions. The pure heart, the pure in heart will see the purest heart. And he who continually gazes upon the purest heart will be purified. Feed on the heart of Christ and nourish your soul. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, Jesus himself says, Learn of me, for I am lowly in heart. 1 John 3, 2-3. Paul writes, Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So you see the the beatitude just in that verse. That hope in him that when he is revealed, we shall see him even as he is. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. And everyone that has this hope in them purifies himself just as he is pure. 
I'd like to end with this and apply it to ourselves. And I'll be getting into a second sermon on this beatitude because I don't want to keep you too long. And in the second sermon, I'll deal more with this, what it is to see God. I don't want to rush through that. Here's just a taste of it in in the last verse that we, we quoted but here, put your name in this. It was a charge to Solomon in 1 Chronicles 28.9. He says, As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your fathers and serve him with a loyal heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands all the intents of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will be found of you. Serve him with a loyal heart and a willing mind. But you see the promise at the end. If you seek him, he will be found of you. It says elsewhere, if you seek him with all your heart, you will find him. It's that whole pure heart, the pure heart that is undivided, the singleness of I, looking to Christ, looking unto Jesus. So do you have a heart that's described tonight? Do you have that pure heart? You can ask yourself that. You can examine yourself. But only the Holy Spirit and the the Word of God can really do that. And I just want to leave you some here tonight will, I think, unnecessarily be doubting if they have this pure heart. I mean, it's, it's a hard, when I hit this beatitude, it was like, I thought I, thought I was hit hard with blessed are the merciful. <clears throat> it's good to examine yourself. God help us if we never do that. But do your self-examination with biblical wisdom. Don't gauge it on your feelings. You may feel no heartbeat at times and think you're dead. I was sitting on my, in my easy chair and thinking about the heart, and I, I felt my chest, and I didn't feel a thing. But I got up. I, I knew I was living. I didn't feel anything. Feelings, emotions enter into it, but not necessarily in the moment. Instead of the stethoscope temporarily, like a doctor puts to your heart, wear a heart monitor all the time. Look at the bent of your life, not just a few days, not just a few steps, but your whole life. And again, we'll, we'll look into this further as, as I continue this. Um, blessed are the pure in heart. We'll look at, at some of the ways to know if we have this purity of heart. But that's just a, a, a warning for uh, some that have a sensitive conscience. Um, and if you don't feel your heart, um, if, you don't, if you feel you still doubt and you have a hard time examining your own heart, go to a spiritual cardiologist. What I'm saying is, is, is get counsel from those who know the heart. You can get counsel through good books. The Puritans were surgeons of the heart. But also in this congregation, people that you know will know the heart, know the Word of God. Don't just go to anyone. It, it, some people will have good meaning, and they'll just say, well, you're fine. You're good. Um, 
But go to one that really knows the heart and examines the heart, that asks you questions, um, that will really listen to your heart. In Titus chapter 2, it states, and this was was brought up in the morning service, and I'd like to couple the morning teaching with this tonight, with these words. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly loss, we should live soberly, righteously, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, looking again to that one thing, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. He gave himself for us to purify us, So it's, it's something that God does, has done, and it's something that we enter into. And again, we'll, we'll look at that more in the second sermon. <clears throat> but, but no, it's all by grace. And be thankful for that grace that has purified your heart if you're the pure of heart. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the words of Jesus. We thank you for the whole counsel of God, for with a partial, with a partial word, we we would surely be despondent and lost. But as we would look into your whole word, we find comfort, we find conviction, we find warning, but we find the answers to the what plagues our heart. We find the answer in Jesus Christ, and we thank you for Him. We thank you for the revelation of your word and the grace of God in Christ. And we pray, Father, that you would take these things and that you would help us to examine ourselves to see if we have this purity of heart, that you would shine the searchlight of your word by your Holy Spirit, and that we would not be afraid to do this, but that we would not be discouraged either and be weary in well-doing. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.